Did you know organic food bans over 700 chemicals? That's why it tastes like real food should taste. For 40 years, Series Organics has been leading the way in organics. Join Series Organics, and together, let's eat for change. Hey there, Nathan from Dumbo Feather with you. On this episode is a conversation I loved having with the American biologist and writer David Haskell, who you might recall wrote a widely acclaimed book a few years ago called The Song of Trees. Well, David has continued his inquiry into the sounds of the living world with his latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken. The work is a lyrical exploration of the diverse sounds of our planet and the perils that sonic diversity now faces. It's an exquisite lens through which to think about our relationship with the living world and how we can enter more fully into a conversation that is always waiting for us. David is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South in Tennessee. His classes have received national attention for the innovative ways they combine action in the community with contemplative practice. I spoke with him in March 2022. So this is your third book from what I can see and each has been a scientific and contemplative study of the natural world and the last two in particular, The Song of Trees and now this one, Sounds Wild and Broken, examine the musicality of living things and the soundscapes that we both contribute to and are part of. It's here that I'd like to start. So with this curiosity that you have in the sounds of the natural world, particular that sent you on this path of inquiry, what it is that has attracted you to sound. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you here. And yes, there definitely were things that got me going. Of course, all people are curious about sounds in some way or another. Most of us are vocal. Of course, not everyone is communicating through sound, but everyone, even if our inner ears aren't functioning, has a sensitivity to the vibrations of the world. So Mm -hmm. I see my work as an extension of the natural curiosity and wonder that we all feel in connecting to others through sonic vibrations. My interest went deeper through an invitation offered to me by birds. I had learned a few bird songs when I was a youngster, but it wasn't until I went to university and met people who devoted a good chunk of their lives to studying the meanings and the evolution of bird sounds that my ears really opened up. And it was almost like adding a new sense to my body because I was suddenly tuned into all the diversity of different bird species and different individuals. And you could hear where they were in the seasons. And unlike humans, that were rather boring. We just say spring and summer and autumn and winter. They have hundreds of seasons, you know, when the caterpillars are coming out and the migration is starting and the weather is changing. So sound tuned me into all those amazing dynamics of the world through birds first. And then I started listening to trees and to thinking about sound in deep time. But birds were really the entry point. Mm, mm. And I'm curious, are you a music maker yourself? I am an amateur music maker. I play some guitar and piano and violin, but I'm mostly a music appreciator. You know, one of the things in the book, and that I really believe, is that human music is actually part of a much larger music of the world. So when cats are yowling or birds are singing or frogs are croaking, they're making music of their own kind. And we may or may not find it pleasant, but we're not the ones to judge its musicality. It's in the aesthetic response of of other cats or birds or frogs that we would find the answer, is this music? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Actually, it's one of the questions I had, and I might as well ask it now. It's in the journey and the research that you've done. Was, were there any sound discoveries that really delighted you and that you discovered that you hadn't heard before? Yes, that's one of the delights in the book. And one of the things I hope to convey to readers is some of the acoustic marvels of the world. Some of them are just listening closely to the birds of the everyday. Here in North America, it might be an American robin, a very common suburban bird singing outside the window. Of course, everyone, depending on where we are, we have a different common species. But actually opening our ears to them and paying attention mm. in ways that honor them and listen for the physical nuances and the variations of the sound, I think for me is a marvelous thing. Then there are the other things that we have to work pretty hard to hear. For example, dropping a hydrophone under the water on the seashore close to a very rich tidal marsh. And I in North America, and oh my goodness, the sounds just blew me away because there were little snapping shrimp making sparkly sounds. There were three species of fish mm. grunting and thumping and booming at one another. My eyes look at this and they say, well, it's just a flat, fairly mm. boring piece of water, right? There's, there's, there's nothing here. There's no story. And then the hydrophone made me realize, wow, this is almost like being teleported into a rainforest or something. There's so much sound going on here. Wow. And it's sound underwater of a very mysterious quality because the sound travels very fast underwater. I remember you writing, it's four times brighter and more resonant underwater, is that right? Yeah, there's a liveliness to it. And a lot of the sounds of underwater are percussive. So tiny little clicks of shrimp claws bashing together that unite into great silvery clouds of sound or the sounds that fish make by rubbing muscles rapidly up and down on their swim bladders inside their bodies turning their whole body into a loudspeaker or a drum surface. So the textures, the timbers of sound were very different. So that was just a delight for the ears. It also taught me a little bit about don't trust your eyes. If your eyes are saying there's nothing going on here, take a closer listen and you might discover something. So you mentioned the hydrophone before, some of the equipment that you're using to detect sound in spaces that we wouldn't normally be able to hear them. That's right? Yes. So the hydrophone is essentially a microphone adapted to being underwater. I've used other sensors like little accelerometers, which are devices that pick up movement. And if you get a very sensitive one, you can put it, say, on the twig of a tree. And as the twig moves in the wind, as the wind jostles the leaves of the tree, you can pick up the vibrations, the sound that is actually inside the tree that our ears, you know, we can pick up a little bit of the whoosh of the wind in tree leaves. And every species of tree has a really different sound in the wind or in the rain. But inside the tree, there's this whole other acoustic world that if you're a woodpecker or a beetle crawling underneath the bark to eat the insides of the tree, you're very attuned to that acoustic world. This is like being on another planet, except it's just right outside the back door in an ordinary looking tree. So have the technology allowed us to hear almost all of the sounds <laughs> that could be heard or are we not hearing nearly as many sounds that are actually existing? Yeah, I think there's a lot more. I mean, the crazy thing about our hearing is that we actually hear a pretty narrow range of frequencies. So maybe from about 20 hertz, so that's 20 sound waves per second, up to 20,000. If you've got really exceptional ears, mine are not that good. I'm well into middle age, and so I've lost hearing a lot of the high frequencies, as everyone does as we age. There's a long buried evolutionary bargain that we struck that we get to have rich senses, but at the cost of losing them as we age. That's a whole evolutionary story. The key thing is we hear a pretty narrow range. If we were pigeons or elephants, we would hear much, much lower frequency sounds. We'd be able to hear a thunderstorm before it even comes over the horizon. If we were bats, 
or even cats, my domestic house cat here can hear up to 50, 60, maybe even 70,000 hertz, so way into what we call the ultrasonic. And of course, we can use microphones to speed up and, and record and slow down and put things into human range, but we're missing that immediacy of the experience. And then there are sounds that are just out of this earth, quite literally. Because it turns out the first sound waves in the universe formed when the universe was a very compact, very, very small blazing mire of hot plasma. And there were sound waves flowing through that. As the universe expanded, those sound waves turned into the atoms that formed the stars. And when astronomers measure the distance between galaxies in the night sky, they find that on average, they're about 500 million light years apart. That is the mark of the ancient sound waves. So, of course, we can't hear that. 500 million light waves is huge. And this is like the deepest sound in the universe. It sort of boggles the imagination even to try to think of it. And yet, you look at the night sky, there's ancient sound there. And we can perceive it only by taking very sophisticated measurements of distances among galaxies. Yeah, that's what I loved about the book is this relationship that illuminates between sound and past. The fact that we hear sounds today that have existed, you know, as you're saying, on the planet for millions of years, as simple as the lapping of waves on a shore or the wind over rocks. These are long time sounds. They connect us to moments in the past. So, yeah, I, I thought that was really exquisite to think about. And those were the sounds of the early Earth. For nine-tenths of Earth's history, there were no songs, there's no speech. Mm. And yet we can listen to that primordial Earth just by going to the seashore or by listening to the rain falling on soil or rocks or vegetation mm. and have an immediate experience of this deep time in a way that other senses can't. You know, you can look at fossils, and they're cool. It's great to imagine fossils rising up from the rocks and running around. But the experience is very different to look at a fossilized remains of a creature, whereas with this sonic experience of something simple like waves or a little water course running down through a stream, we're back to how it was like two billion years ago. Mm. So, of course, before life evolved, there were the physical sounds of the world, the sounds of waves and wind, lightning, geology, tectonic plates grinding around. Then life evolved, but it took hundreds of millions of years, even after complex animals evolved, for the first communicative sounds to happen. Those animals, and even single-celled beings like bacteria, are making sound as a bacteria grows and digests things within it. Its cell surface is trembling, and that's making tiny, weeny little sound waves that go out into the environment around it. But as far as we know, those bacteria aren't communicating with other bacteria. The same with the first animals. They made sounds as they were swimming and chewing and wandering around. Again, as far as we know, and it may be that the fossil evidence is incomplete or hasn't been fully analyzed for this, current state of knowledge is that all those early animals didn't make things that we would now regard as alarm calls or mating cries. That came later in life, probably because making a song or a cry was a dangerous thing. All the early animals could hear, at least down in the low frequencies. If you were a little shrimp and you started making a mating sound, you're going to get eaten. So the first communicative animals, the first ones that make communicative sounds, tended to be fast, able to jump or fly or leap or swim away very rapidly from predators. Right. And so before then, animals were communicating, we think, mostly through chemicals and eye contact. Is that right? 
chemicals in sophisticated eyes evolved very early on in animal evolution. And also probably through tactile senses, particularly at the bottom of a murky ocean or at night on land. You can't see anything. You can get a little bit of chemical communication, but just feeling their way around. And that feeling is interestingly connected to the sense of hearing as well. We tend to think it's, it's humans, right? Hearing is in our ears and the sense of touch is in our fingertips and on our skin. But actually, in animal evolution, it's not quite so clearly defined. And even in our own bodies, I would say it's not quite so clearly divided because we can hear vibrations, say, loud, low-frequency music. We can hear that in our chest. Musicians can feel vibrations in their fingertips and use that to add nuance and subtlety to their playing of the piano or the violin or the guitar, whatever the instrument is. For insects, a lot of their sense of hearing is actually in their exoskeleton and in the joints of their legs. And so feeling and hearing are all kind of wrapped up together. Mm. Yeah, we did a disservice by siloing our senses like we have. Yeah, our language just really oversimplifies things and misses out whole senses, like the sense of our body moving through space. That's really important. Without it, you'd fall flat on your face if you tried to walk. And yet we don't really regard the internal feel of our muscles and our sense of balance and so on as one of the key five senses. And yet, of course, that's a vital way in which we know the world. Also connected to hearing because the hearing that happens in the inner ear is happening in the same space that detects balance. Anyone who's had an ear infection knows this very well. Your hearing is affected, but also your sense of balance. Mm. I just want to probably just step back a bit just to talk about the book. So, first of all, I love this title, Sounds Wild and Broken. There's something just so expressive and how it rolls off the tongue. It's really extraordinary. I love saying it. The book is imploring us to recommune with the voices of the earth, as we've been talking about, with the music that so many of us seem to have closed our ears to over time. And so I want to explore, first of all, some of the ways that we have become disconnected from the sounds around us. And then the second part of my question is around the gift and the responsibility of being available to listen in the way that you are inviting us to, so why it's so important. Yeah, the forgetting to listen, I think, is a form of dissociation, and it happens in lots of different ways in our lives. Partly, the dislocations of the global economy mean we can't hear the consequences of our actions. So when I buy something that's shipped in from another continent, I can't hear the consequences of my consumption on the ecosystems yeah, yeah, yeah. or even the people of that continent. And so the fact that we're trading so many goods over such vast distances means that in a way we cannot listen unless we really make an effort to go and understand, well, where am I sourcing this material from and, and what are the, the consequences of my actions? Yeah. For species that until very, very recently could easily apprehend through our ears, our eyes, our noses, our fingertips, our bodies, we could easily discover the consequences of our actions around us. And we based our ethics on that. And if we see something we're doing is destroying the world, mostly we're going to stop doing that. Now we can go merrily along destroying the world because we're not sensing the immediate consequences of every action. So that's a sort of very big scale way in which we're not listening. And I think part of the solution to that needs to be being in solidarity with people on other continents in other places and listening to their stories. There are people everywhere in the world ready to tell us how to live better on this earth. Mm. So that's a very global way of thinking about it. But also in the everyday, very practical individual level, we're surrounded by technologies and encouragements to turn our attention away from the voices of other species. In my work, I'm writing about the voices of other species and I'm teaching undergraduates about this as my work as a professor. And yet, a good chunk of my day spent staring at the laptop screen, answering emails. Mm. So very much gazing inward at the dynamics of the human species. 
which is fine up to a point, right? Every species has to pay attention to its own business. But we've done that to such an extreme degree that we can go through an entire day without consciously being aware of the voices of anyone except ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean other human beings and our own voices. And technology doesn't help because, of course, social media is designed to keep our eyes on the screen, to keep the ad revenue coming and keep the clicks going. Social media is a good way to connect with other people, but it's getting more and more sophisticated at, again, drawing our attention inward and away from the voices of what philosopher David Abram calls the more-than-human world. Mm -hmm. And the key is not to stop listening to people or to unplug from everything, but it's to find that balance. Among the things that I'm going to listen to, can I find room to tune into the seasons through the voices of the insects wherever I live, like the cicadas and the crickets, or find out what's going on in the neighborhood based on what the birds are doing. Are we in a deep drought? And if so, what are the consequences of that? Mm. Is there a snake moving through the undergrowth? And if so, the birds up in that tree will tell me exactly where it is if I listen to their calls. There's all kinds of amazing, rich information out there that makes our lives more joyful and interesting to live as well as grounding us as ethical beings to sort of connect us back into the real world. And there's a lot of talk about fake news and as a serious problem, the sounds of the living earth, the wind blowing in the trees, mm. or if we attend to the water sounds of the dolphins and the whales and the shrimp, that's not fake news. They're not trying to deceive us at all. They're disclosing the real nature of the world inviting us into that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Tuning in serves as a source of joy because it enriches our lives. It really connects us to our non-human neighbors, to the dramas of their lives, to the multiplicity of different species around us, and to the weirdness of some of their sounds. I mean, some frogs and insects are really out there <laughs> on the edge of human hearing in a way that is delightful and amusing and fun to share with kids and to share with your friends. So there's playfulness in this, yeah. as well as, as ethical beings who need to decide how to live our lives, both individually and collectively. Listening is a great way to start that. It's not going to answer our detailed policy questions. But a very powerful species that has stopped listening to everything else doesn't seem to me like a good recipe for success. So just as it's true in human relationships, in a relationship with a lover or a parent or offspring or a friend, and you're not listening to them, that's not going to go well. Mm. The same is true without ecological relationships. So I mean this quite literally, listening to the voices of other beings. It also helps us hear ourselves more clearly. Oh, our music and language is amazing. No other species does it quite the way we do. Mm. Lots mm. of other species have language and music, but none like us. My experience of listening to human speech and particularly to human music was changed through this process of challenging myself to listen more deeply to other species. I wonder also if we would have created the amount of destruction that we have in the natural world if we were listening in the way that you're inviting us to listen. A big part of the book is making us aware of the loss of sonic diversity in our ecosystems and that, of course, is related to habitat destruction and climate change and other factors. You write about the pine plantations that you surveyed that were not exactly silent, but their sandscapes were more impoverished compared with the forests they replaced. So our kind of human needs and desires are extinguishing the voices of other species. So I guess this question is around the impact of the diminishing diversity. Yeah. And of course, part of the issue is that there are billions of human beings on the planet. And in general, we have increasing appetites for more stuff. 
in the US, I don't know what the numbers are in Australia or other continents, but in the US, we throw away something like 12 million tons of furniture every year. And only one tenth of 1% gets recycled. So that seems enormously wasteful because most of that furniture came from forests. A lot of it came from Southeast Asian tropical forests. That seems an improvident way of living in relation to other beings. Mm. I'm a big fan of furniture. I'm not arguing we should go around just sitting on the ground all the time. The question is, how do we balance our needs with the needs of other species? How do we make space on this planet for thriving of other species? And it's a challenge when we have such enormous appetites and when there are so many of us. Listening, of course, is part of the answer to that. And in general, listening can then be put to use in ways that help land managers. One example is from Borneo and some researchers from the US and from the Nature Conservancy based in Australia who have used technologies of sound recording out in the rainforest to measure the effects of different sorts of logging. And the idea there is not to put a lid on all logging or all use of woods, but to find ways of getting what we need from the woods, timber and other forest products, in a way that doesn't completely wipe out the biodiversity of the species that live there. And it turns out that the sound of the forest gives us a signal about the vitality of the forest. And so all this talk of listening can seem very abstract, but it actually has a very, very practical application that can be used to help hone our management techniques and to understand very complicated places like rainforests. I mean, rainforests have got tens of thousands of species in one hectare. There is no human alive on the planet who can identify all of those species. And so that ultimately, we can't fully understand our effects on the rainforest, but we can get an estimate by listening. And some of that listening involves just using our ears, but using digital recorders that are recording 24-7 then feeding that into sophisticated software. We can then pull out patterns and relationships that help us be better managers. So I do think listening has some practical applications for land managers. Now, in the extreme, though, some of our practices on the planet are not just changing habitats, they're just wiping them out. So when we completely clear the bush, completely level a tropical forest and then plant a monoculture of something behind it, whether it's grasses or tree plantations, we have eliminated almost all of the indigenous voices of creatures that lived there before our actions. And there is room for intensive agricultural management. There is room for intensive forestry, but not spread over the entire landscape. And again, it's a question of balance. If we're going to do intensive agriculture, does that actually free up space on the planet for other species that won't be so heavily impacted? So far, the answer has been mostly no. And that's a problem because we are smothering the rest of life's community. Mm. Can you give us a sense of the sonic diversity loss that we've experienced over the past few decades? Yeah, it very much depends on where you are. And the key thing is that there are still places on this planet where sonic diversity is phenomenal, inspiring, bring you to tears just to be immersed in it and pay attention to it. So to me, that's a key thing. This is not a story of we've messed up the planet and it's all doom. We live on a beautiful, amazing, vital planet. And wouldn't it be great if we could help lift up some of that vitality? So a few examples. The oceans used to be home to millions and millions of whales and billions of fish most of which have been silenced through overfishing and are now being pushed in many places to the brink of catastrophe by the amount of sound, the amount of noise pollution that we're pumping down into the oceans. Noise has 
over the last few decades, just since mid 20th century, has increased vastly every decade, partly because of shipping noise, right? Every time we buy something from another continent that came to us on a large ship, mostly 90% of the stuff at least arrives that way, that is pumping sound down into the oceans. But also seismic exploration for oil is a huge problem for a lot of marine organisms. And that, again, has been increasing year by year, decade by decade. The pandemic has put a cap on it just temporarily, but as oil prices are going back up now and the world economy is gearing back up, seismic exploration surely will be too. But even there, you've got places, for example, off the east coast of Australia, where some of these marine mammals are coming back population levels rise. And this, to me, gives me great hope is that, yes, we've done damage through overfishing, through pumping noise into the oceans. But if we just back off a bit, what does life want to do? It wants to thrive. It wants to come back. And the story of humpback whales and some other species of whales, some of the Antarctic whales, uh, slowly recovering, in some cases, recovering a little more rapidly. This is one of those where we can find some hope. Mm. On land, tropical forests are in crisis. I think that's a huge issue for climate change. It's also a big issue for biodiversity of the world and its expression as sound and as species diversity and as genetic diversity. We lose about 12 million hectares of forest every year. 4 million hectares of that are primary tropical forest. And by loss, I mean conversion to non-forest things like plantations or clearings. Mm. So on a vast scale, we're pushing against the most diverse and life-giving parts of the planet, unnecessarily so, because we know that we can feed ourselves, we know that we can meet our timber needs without having to cut further and deeper into primary tropical forests. That's a story that's still very active and there's still plenty of room for doing good on the ground uh, conservation and management. Mm -hmm. Other places, say in North America, the prairies that covered these rich grasslands with soil, sometimes 12, 20 feet deep, some of the richest soil in the world, mm -hmm. 95 to 99% of that habitat is gone. And you have rows of wheat, you have rows of corn, mm -hmm. and almost no room for any of the creatures that lived there before. So that's a sort of an extreme example of where we could go with tropical forests. I think if we do push tropical forests that far, the consequences for the climate and for human viability will be very severe. The prairies don't play quite such an important role in the biodiversity of the planet and the climate stability of the planet, but they are an example of what in just a few decades humans can do with our machines and our desire to take over habitat. Mm. So you mentioned at the start that there are some places in the world with really rich sonic diversity. I wonder if you can take us into one of those landscapes and give us a sense of the sound. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so one of the ones that was really important for me, because it taught me so much, was visiting the eastern part of Ecuador in South America. Oh, right. So this is the western Amazon rainforest. The forests there are, as far as we know, some of the most diverse places anywhere in the terrestrial realm of the planet. Mm. There are as many species of tree in a few hectares as there are in all of North America, as many birds in a few hectares as in the entire continent of Western Europe and North America combined. So lots and lots of biodiversity. How does that manifest in sound? Well, lying awake at night in the little cabin at a research center in the middle of the forest, the forest is all around me. I'm hearing uncountable layers of sound all around me. At the very highest layer, it's like these shimmering silvery clouds of cricket sounds and katydids. And I know there are actually clouds even higher than that because there are insects that sing in the ultrasound. 
Then below that, there's sort of a, almost a sound like sand, very fine sand being poured out of a glass onto a table, sort of whooshing sound. Those are sounds of other insects, particularly bush crickets, rubbing their wings together. Then there are different grasshoppers. And as we walk down through the frequency, when we get into the frogs, several different species of frogs are yelping. And it sounds like they're throwing their voices around from one place to another. And then a low, sonorous hooting of an owl and the early cries of the pre-dawn birds, the birds that are just waking up, knowing that the sun is going to rise soon, layering in here. And this is an experience that full immersion in the sounds of hundreds of species singing at once that totally overwhelms my sense of hearing. When I listen to human music, or even to a woodland in a temperate area like in North America, I can usually follow what's going on, follow the melody and listen to the layers of sound that the composer produced, or hear the way that different species interweave their songs together in a temperate woodland. Mm. In the rainforest, there's just too much. And maybe it's just my ears are unskilled and other people will be able to do this. But to me, it just feels completely overwhelming Because I either have to focus on one of those layers and really zone in there, or just sort of back out and listen to the whole as it combines together. And some people compare the experiences like an orchestra and so on. And I get that analogy because there's a richness of different voices present here. But for me, Mm. it's not an orchestra because an orchestra has one conductor and it's serving the aesthetic of one species that's humans. And there's one conductor and one composer. In the rainforest, there are thousands of different aesthetics, thousands of different composers and singers and so on. And yes, they coordinate and they're beautifully well meshed in together, but it's a ground up, anarchic way of assembling a composition rather than a hierarchical one, which is what human music is all about. We impose our will on sound, if you like, and it's beautiful for that. You know, you hear the creativity and the artistry Mm. of individuals and orchestras and bands, but the forest is something else altogether. It is the union of multiple species. Mm. Never have I been so attracted to overwhelm. (laughs) You made it sound so enticing. (laughs) But something I was thinking about then was a part of the book where you talk about how hearing in terms of vocabulary has been devalued in our culture. So we've got this impoverished vocabulary for hearing. We only have words like listen or attend, hear, as opposed to movement where, you know, we've got lots of words like crawl and slide and trot and flutter. And, you know, what you were doing then in that beautiful description was opening me personally, and I'm sure our listeners too, up to actually the range of vocabulary we have for hearing. And perhaps there's a lot more of it that we're not using to describe what it is that we hear. Yeah, language reflects where we put our attention. And we mostly have put our attention into the visual. With hearing, we struggle to find words to describe what we're experiencing. With other senses, like the sense of smell, the same is true. You know, we have to find other ways of describing things. When our language is limited, what do we do? Well, one thing we can do is use analogies that sounds are sharp or silvery or lush and squishy. So draw on other senses to try and evoke the feeling of the sound. We can also, though, when we're not trying to communicate with other people, just experience the pure physicality of the sound without trying to label it. Mm, mm. And this is one thing I do in cities or in the forest is just do a kind of listening meditation, pay attention to the sounds and not try and name them, but just be in their presence and feel how they manifest in my body. Are they all around me or are they coming from just one place? 
what sort of textures are present, what kind of colors maybe. A lot of people see different colors. So just let the senses do their thing without trying to box them in with language. And then we can share that with other people. I think this is a common experience, say, when we go to a concert with other people. Yeah, we might talk about it, but mostly we're just there sharing the sensory experience together and enjoying it without having to label and categorize it. What I would hope is that we could do more and more of that for the non-human world as well. Go out into a salt marsh or out into some grassland or on a busy city street and just enjoy as a communal exercise the experience of listening. And then maybe we could honor special sounds. There's a project in Japan that I find particularly inspiring. The Ministry of the Environment back in the 1990s named what they called 100 Soundscapes of Japan. Mm. They got people from all over the country to nominate particular sounds that they thought were really interesting and worth noting. For example, the sounds of wind blowing on the sands of a beach that are really evocative of that particular place, or the sounds of a cultural festival or of temple bells. These aren't just sounds of the non-human world. It's both non-human and human together. Mm. And what they did was elevate that listening experience and offer it up in a celebratory way, in the same way that we might protect an area with a national park or honor a particular object or a work of art by putting the object in a museum. Mm. They were doing the same thing with sensory experience. What would it be if every city, every town just picked out one or two notable sounds or smells or other sensory experiences from that year and added them to the list. Mm. Imagine we'd all go out and just enjoy that. And if we'd been doing that back in the 1950s and 60s, we'd learn a lot about the culture and what people were thinking and feeling at that time, as well as what the sounds of that era were through that legacy of objects and of sensory experiences that people chose to honor. Mm. I love that. And it actually leads into something else I wanted to explore with you, which is around sound and belonging, this relationship between the two. I'm thinking about what's happening in Ukraine and so much moves me to tears watching scenes from the everyday civilians and the acts of connection and bravery that they show. And one of them, of course, is singing, the fact that we're seeing people come together in the face of war and singing and making music. We know how powerful singing is for belonging. So I just wonder what you might like to share around the role of sound in connection to each other. Yeah, I mean, in human culture, singing uses sound's great power, which is to connect people instantaneously in the moment into unison. And it's not just listening, but if we're a participatory singing, we're all contributing Mm. to what is really just very ephemeral sound waves in air. They arise and then they dissipate. And yet the paradox is it's ephemeral, but it is deeply, deeply connected. Mm. This is what birds and insects and frogs and whales and all the vocal creatures of the planet are doing. They're connecting to one another in times of war, but also in times of joy, say when we welcome a new baby into the world, or in times of grief when we're laying someone to rest in the ground after they have died. We often come together in communal song because sound has this power to knit together what was disparate, to unite hearts and souls and minds. So what humans experience is one form of what other creatures are also experiencing. The humpback whales in the ocean are also knit together in unison by their singing. The same with the frogs in a swamp or the katydids, the bush crickets up in the trees of a subtropical forest. Mm -hmm. So the fact that sound moves us is sort of a reminder both of the power of human love and connection in times of trial, but also of the broader story of sound, which is this is what sound does for many, many other species. 
One other thing about belonging, belonging, of course, is about the human sounds of our homes, but it's also about the sounds of non-human beings. I had a very powerful experience of this. I actually grew up in the first years of my life in an apartment in Paris, in France, and I had no conscious memory of the birds singing around that apartment. But years later, like 45 years later, in fact, I rented an Airbnb in Paris to visit some family and do some work there. And there was a common European blackbird singing in the courtyard behind. And the song was resonating inside this space. And suddenly I was transported back into the mind of a little three-year-old. And I asked my mom about this and she said, yes, when you were a little baby and a youngster, there was a blackbird that used to sing in the courtyard behind our apartment. So sonic memory is like this internal compass that orients us back to home. I wasn't paying attention to him as a little kid. I was playing with my blocks and concerned about my sister stealing my teddy bear, all those kind of things. I wasn't trying to be a bird watcher. And yet somehow that memory had lodged into my mind. And the same is true when people move between continents. And there's some interesting anthropological studies of people, say, from Northern Europe who moved to Australia or Australians who moved to Northern Europe. Sounds of birds are very, very different. And people have this sense of dislocation and of not belonging, at least at first. And will often find a CD or an app on their phone to play some of the sounds of home to evoke those sounds. And it's not that one set of birds is more evocative than the other. It's no, what we grew up with is what we think of as home. And we might delight in the novelty of a new place, but we also feel this longing for what came before. And that's, I think, a deep part of what it is to be a human is to have that profound sonic memory that ties us to a particular place on the landscape. And then, of course, to the music and the words of the human community around us. But it's not just about human sounds. It's about the other sounds, too. Mm. You write that sound has evolved with the landscape, of course, with the vegetation and the other species around us, and that human speech has also evolved according to place. Yes, and this is one of the interesting things that we discovered about how sound evolves just in the last few decades. Think of a simple example, birds living in dense foliage, say in a dense forest, tend to sing warbled, slow, whistling songs, because those are the sounds that transmit well through that dense vegetation. Whereas birds that are on the seashore, they tend to have harsh, very high-pitched, loud cries so they can be heard above the crashing waves. So every species is adapted to its place. The same is true for human languages, not quite as extreme an example as the birds that really radically differ from one another. But for example, human cultures that have very soft food tend to be agrarian cultures, retain the dental overbite into adulthood. So our bottom teeth fit behind our top teeth. And that means we can make F and V sounds very easily. So words like favorite that's a sound that involves a lot of labiodental sounds, so sounds where the teeth and the lips and the tongue are all working together. Hunter-gatherer societies tend to eat tougher foods, and their teeth mature and lose the childish overbite. The bottom and the top teeth meet together, and those kinds of sounds are harder to make. And so their languages tend to not have quite so many of those sounds. So our diet is reflected in the form of our language. And I'm speaking obviously in English now, which is a language of people who ate soft boiled oats and <laughs> barley and things, drank lots of beer and got their calories that way. And so those are my ancestors. And that comes out in the shape of the words that I'm speaking now. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. 
I was just thinking then, do you know much about what it is that attracts us to certain sounds? Is it that familiarity and nostalgia or is it subjective or biological or is there much what sounds we like and why? Certainly familiar sounds that have a strong emotional connection. Of course, for people who had very challenging or abusive childhoods, the sounds of home have exactly the opposite effect, so repulsive effect. And so, yes, the emotional baggage that comes with sounds is part of it. But beyond that, sounds that are very abrupt and unexpected and uncontrollable tend to be regarded as stressful. And in fact, even when we're asleep and not consciously aware of it, our blood pressure goes up when we hear things like a helicopter flying overhead or an airplane coming by or a car honking, which is one of the problems with urban noise is that we can't control it. And it actually stresses our body out in a way that isn't just an inconvenience. It actually makes us ill. Noise has been shown very clearly to fragment sleep, disrupt learning, and to cause things like increased rates of cardiovascular disease. So those kind of noises we're sort of repelled from. Other sounds that fall within the frequency spectrum that match tempo and rhythms, the ecosystems in which humans evolved for hundreds of thousands of years, the wind in the trees, the trickling sound of water, sounds of light rain, perhaps, gentle chirping of crickets. These are all sounds that for hundreds of thousands of years and probably longer, millions of years, have indicated safety to us. And to this day, if you go and look at relaxation apps or apps that give sound, help people fall asleep and stay asleep, they often have those sounds that are the sounds that our ancestors would have been hearing. In a cultural context, music is a very special case of this. What seems to please us is a tension and a balance between order and unpredictability. So music that is completely disordered, that there's no pattern, we don't even recognize as music. It just sounds as like a jump. Sounds that are just exactly predictable, like the same thumping sound, the same strum of a guitar or something over and over again, we might find interesting for a few seconds and then we lose interest and it just becomes annoying. But when you can have some repetition and novelty combined in interesting ways, that is what attracts our ear. And I don't know, this is speculative, but it seems to me that a lot of human aesthetics is like that, is that we like a certain measure of order and then we like novelty within that. We want things that fit together in a unity, that have some pattern and order to them, but we also want difference and variety within that. And music is a sonic expression of that form of aesthetics. Mm, awesome. So just as we come to a close, there's one thing I wanted to explore with you that boggles my mind, and it's kind of the conclusion that you come to in the book. And you write that sound ultimately has value because it's generative. It's a creative force. And I've written down here something that you write. You write that waves in ancient plasma, the songs of crickets and whales, the babble of young sparrows and humans, the tones of human breath in mammoth ivory. These are creators, not as gods, but as the living and physical processes that made the universe. That is why the diversity of sounds is so glorious. We hear not only the result of creation, but the very act of creation. So that's epic to think about. And it's, of course, spoken a lot in philosophical and spiritual traditions. But it is boggling for me that sound is the creator and the creation. Yeah, it's both. And that's partly why it's so marvelous. And, you know, its creative force comes down to its power to connect us. And I think that's what you're alluding to earlier about the use of song in times of distress, is that without sound, all these vocal species, and humans in particular, we'd be cut off and alone. But sound instead connects, 
immediately over vast distances, extraordinary thing. And then when connection happens, that opens possibility. So the generative power of sound isn't a mystical thing. I mean, there may be mystical levels to it. I'm not wise enough to perceive them. At a physical and biological level, connection opens possibility, which in terms of evolution and culture then yields new diversity, new life, new vitality. Hmm, that was yeah, much simpler than <laughs> um, I was expecting. So, of course, and that's why preserving the diversity of sound is so important. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about the action part of this whole discussion, what it is that we can do to support and enhance the sonic diversity in our ecosystems. Yeah, I, I'd suggest a couple of things. One is find other people to listen with, a very simple act, and just see where that listening leads you. There are lots of great sound artists. I talk about some of them in my book, Leah Barkley, David Rothenberg, and Helica Negron, all amazing artists and musicians leading us into deeper listening. So that's part of the practice. And then the other part is to seek out the things that are broken and see what we can do with our individual gifts and talents to fix those. It may be donating, it may be volunteering, it certainly will be being politically active and voting to do something about what we hear in the world. And the world, of course, is a beautiful place. It's also a broken place. How can we tip ourselves on the side of creating more beauty for future generations rather than more brokenness? Mm, thanks so much, David. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. That was awesome. That was David Haskell whose latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, goes deep into all of these topics we've touched on. I love the work. David has a wonderful way of bringing science and poetry together and has so much to share from his many years of research. You can find it where all good books are sold. Thanks to our partners, Series Organics, for being with us on the Dumbo Feather Adventure. They have been leading the way in organic food for over 40 years. And you can find their range of delicious products at your local grocer. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com forward slash shop. We deliver right around the world. Bye for now.